Well, good morning and happy Sabbath to you all. We're going to spend some time together today and tomorrow in looking at homegrown nutrition. I think that that is a wonderful, wonderful title for this presentation, the series of presentations that we have. My name is Burke Connell. I am from Loma Linda University, and I am the chair of the Nutrition and Dietetics Program at Loma Linda. And our other presenter is Scott Arrington, here from Third Angels Farm in Stone Mountain, Georgia. Yes, sir. And uh, we have worked together before, and it's really good to be back together again here in Orlando. I thought that I would spend a few minutes in trying to set the stage for what we're going to do as far as gardening and look at the relationship that the gardening had for our parents, for Adam and Eve, and for God. And God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put man and woman who he had formed in Genesis 2, 8. Now, what kind of a garden was this Garden of Eden? Perfect. It was a perfect one, wasn't it? You know, if we were to cross the pond here and go over to the United Kingdom, to England, and we started talking about a garden, what would we be talking about? We would be talking about the bushes and the flowering trees and the lawns and everything that is there. I think that's an important thing, but at the same time, we're going to look at it from the point of view of nutrition and how we can use this space, these opportunities to develop the very best nutrition possible. Further in Genesis, God says, And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in Genesis 2.9. But I would like to suggest that there is a connection between what we have uh, seen and read about as far as the Garden of Eden is concerned, and gardens that we have in today's world. And I'd like to suggest that the garden can be a source of spiritual connection. Adam and Eve met God in the still of the evening in the Garden of Eden. Our Lord, when he was on earth, spent much time in prayer. And much of this time, or some of this time, was spent in the Garden of, Eden, of Garden of Gethsemane. And so the Garden of Gethsemane is particularly noted for the anguish that Christ went through. But it was a place that he also got comfort from the angels and from his Heavenly Father. So I would like to suggest that there is a parallel today, that a garden is a place where health can be developed 
or restored. Gardening places us in a very helpful environment. Gardening applies the eight natural remedies that are outlined by Ellen White. Whether we call it the eight natural remedies, whether we call it new start, or whether we call it creation, I think the message is the same. And I have chosen to use the original um, as indicated in Ellen White's writing, such as the pure air, the sunlight, the avoidance of excess. We'll talk more about that. Rest, exercise, proper diet, the use of water, and trust in, divi in divine power. So let's talk a little bit about pure air. The garden puts us out into an environment where we do have an opportunity to get fresh air. We can take deep breaths of wonderful, wonderful air. And the smells of nature. Can you smell things that you, you know, as you're looking in your mind and going back in your mind, the smells that come. Um, I have a picture on my iPad here of some mountains and pine trees and fir trees surrounding them. And I can just smell what is there as I remember taking this picture a few years ago. And so we certainly have that in the garden. Even the smell of the soil I like, but I also like the flowers. Sunlight. Sunlight helps to improve our mood. It helps to produce or produces vitamin D on the surface of our skin. And it is necessary for plant growth through photosynthesis. And through this process, we get the development of oxygen. And that's part of the air that we are breathing. So the sunlight is going to be a very important part of what we're going to benefit wherein, when we are in the garden. The third is refraining from excess, abstaining from drugs in all forms. But I would like to suggest that temperance or abstaining from excesses also applies to food. Is that possible? Do you have any idea how many what we could call gluttons that we have in this world? In the United States, we have more than 30% of the population who is classified as obese. They have a body mass index of greater than 30. About 60 to 70% of the population in the United States is overweight or obese. And so that is something that um, I see as a sign of the end times that we're living in because we are told that in the last days there are going to be gluttony just as there was just before the flood. And so I think that gardening is a way in which we can eat food without excess but still getting all of the nutrition 
that we definitely need. And so part of what we are going to see in balance is an opportunity to spend time in meditation as we are in the garden. It's a very restful place. And that brings us now to our fourth one, and that is rest. Now, it's not necessarily that we put up a hammock in the garden and we sleep there in the afternoon, but it's a change of pace. After a busy day in the office or in teaching or whatever we're doing, it's nice to have a change of pace, to get out and work in the garden. That can be a very important part of our rest for the mind and for the body. It helps to relieve anxiety and to provide a break from the general rush of life. Some of us live in a very urban area where there is constant traffic. I think we see that even here around the hotel. You can't be in a hurry when you want to drive in Orlando, it seems. The amount of time that it takes to get through a traffic light, it helps us to rest. And so what can we do? Where can we take our mind as we're waiting for that light to change? We can use some of these as an opportunity for rest. The fifth is that of exercise. Now, gardening is a labor of love. Or it can be just plain labor. Um, Scott, in, in your work as a gardener, do you get exercise or is it you just sit there and wait for the garden to grow so you can harvest? Um, no, you definitely get a lot of exercise. In fact, I, I used to exercise, you know, like every morning, do certain dumbbells and jog for a certain amount of time. Yeah. But then when, you, when I started gardening for a living, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. What's the difference between driving to the mall and walking for 10,000 steps in the mall or going to the garden and exercising all parts of your body and still getting those 10,000 steps? I think there's some, really some real advantage there. But the thing that I'd like to focus on for just a moment here is out of the garden comes proper nutrition. So in order to know what the best foods are, I think that's important that we study God's original plan for our diet. The first is that um, God gave us really two sets of food. The first says, I have given you every herb yielding seed and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed to you it shall be for food, in Genesis 1.29. But then after sin came in, he gave also the vegetables, the, um, the actual plants. And so gardening provides us an opportunity to grow these vegetables, these fruits, these nuts, these seeds, to provide the nutrition that we really need. The next is the use of water. How have the crops been this year? Have you gotten enough rain, Scott? Good year. Good year for rain. Yeah. Down in the southeast. That is good. Because not too many years ago, we were in 
drought situation here. The lake's pretty well dried up. What's going to happen when we don't have enough water to plant, to sustain our plants and even ourselves? But the use of water not only is important in the photosynthesis process, but it's important for us as well in terms of refreshment, drinking the eight glasses of water that we need, and when you're exercising out in the garden, you may need to even have more than that. But this water provides a cooling for us as well, as well as cleaning. And finally, trust in, in divine power. Is it important to trust God in terms of our garden? Have you ever watched a plant as it is germinating, sending down a root, sending up leaves? Is the power of God demonstrated in that? I think so. Not something that we're going to worship God in that, but we are going to recognize his power in everything that we do in terms of the garden. And so I hope that as a result of this class today and tomorrow, that you will see a possibility of a lifestyle change in what you do in terms of getting out and experiencing the eight principles of health as it is related to in the garden. A bit later we're going to talk about how gardening can be a very important part of the life of the church. And, but until that occurs, I'm going to turn the time over to Scott and um, get started in terms of really learning the, the, what is important in gardening. I wanted to start by, uh, I'm, I'm going to start by, first I want to introduce myself. Uh, this, this, is, uh, this is the homegrown nutrition. It is my belief, my opinion, my belief that, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, we're Seventh-day Adventists and I came in, I really came into the Adventism about 12 years ago because of vegetarianism and health message. I want to be a vegetarian. And my name is Scott Arrington, by the way. And for, before I get into this, you know that little, uh, yeah, that right here, Pat, let me have that. Okay, that paper right there, if, you got, have you, if you've just come in, would everybody uh, make sure that you sign this? And, you know, it's, we'll leave it up here. I think it's passed around once, but, you know, some of the latecomers, um, because if you don't sign it, they don't get an idea how if people liked it or how many people attended, and, you know, they might cancel it next year, you know, and so it's a good idea if you sign it, you know, all that. But anyway. Anyway, um, I got into this because um, uh, I, I, you know, I got into Adventism because of the health message. I want to be a vegetarian. And then, you know, it kind of sort of got from there, you know, the three angels' messages and everything that comes with the health message, you know what I mean? So uh, I had to quit my job. I was a, I was a, a sailor. Uh, I worked as a first officer on merchant ships, uh, big, uh, big merchant ships you know, like tankers, made good money. Uh, was gone, kind of bad on the social life and the family life because I was gone, you know, two months at a time and then home two months at a time. But anyways, when I became an Adventist, I walked away from that because uh, Sabbath conflicts. I mean, you can't honor any days out on the ship. You're 24-7, 365, as long as you're on there. You're, you're married to that ship and you, whatever it needs, they hire you to fix it, right? So 
I walked away from that uh, and uh, was kind of floating around in Adventism and decided to become a medical missionary. I thought that sounded good and that was right into the health message. So I was baptized in 98, became a medical missionary around, uh, you know, between 98 and 2002. Uh, while I was helping uh, somebody with the medical missionary work, a guy with a, 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 a anal cancer, um, I met, uh, he, I was convalescing with him, and I, we saw a, like a home video. He had it. I don't know how he got it, but he was a pretty good gardener, this guy that had cancer, stage four cancer. Uh, he didn't make it. Uh, but uh, in, that, in that process of, you know, spending like two months with him and, you know, just living with him, you know, I was right there. Uh, we watched a couple of videos, and one he had was uh, one with a guy named John Proviance in it. And that's, see, when I first started, that first picture up there, it's not mine, but it, I couldn't, I didn't have a picture of mine because I didn't have a digital camera at the time, uh, back in 98, you know. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but that's square foot gardening. Has anybody ever, you know, you know tried that? Uh, some guy, Bartholomew, wrote the book, and I bought this book, and I thought, I'm in the health food store, I'm buying all my vitamins, and I'm, you know, I'm uh, eating all my organic foods, and, you know, and I thought, I'm going to do gardening. It just made sense that this was a logical progression from our health message. I'm going to do gardening. So I said, I don't know a thing about gardening. I bought the book, uh, Square Foot Gardening, and basically this is what I did, man. I did it just like the book said. I mean, I'm really good at following, you know, instructions when I want to, you know, and, uh, and this one, I realized this guy probably knew a lot more than I did, so I followed the instructions to a T, made the little square foots. And, you know, and tried it for a couple of years, and it just, and I put a lot of money into it, you know, I'm buying all the right things and all that, and I just didn't get the results I had thought I was going to get. I was kind of disappointed, you know, and I thought, well, fooey on this, just do the medical missionary work, I won't bother about a garden, I just don't have the, the knack for it or whatever. Anyways, while I was convalescing in 2003 with this guy, we saw a video, and on that video was an old Adventist guy, I think from, anybody heard of, not Stonehenge, uh, Stone Cave? Stone Cave, I, I, I've never been there, but... Uh, he was from Stone Cave way back, I mean, and uh, he was on this video, it was a shot in the home, and he started talking about, see in the, in the square foot gardening, they were just talking about, okay, use organic inputs, like for potassium, use green sand, and for phosphorus, use bone meal. So I had all these right ingredients, they cost a lot, you know, but I put them on there and I didn't get the results. But then I, saw, then I heard John Provides in this sort of homemade video, I mean, this is like, it was an old one, so I'm sure it was like made 10, 15 years ago from 2003, back in the early 90s maybe. And he started talking about, microbes and how they interact with the plant root and then the, you know that was that was my like epiphany moment that's when uh you know i think the light bulb went off in my head and i'm like microbes in the dirt yeah I man I'm, I'm looking out there my dirt i'm, lo I'm looking out there the dirt and i'm thinking you mean there's there's things living i mean i knew there was things living in there i mean like earthworms we see in ants but i didn't think they had anything to do with plants and you know i thought they were pretty much there to kill the plants you know <laughs> whatever was there, and I didn't, when he was talking, he was like saying, there's this whole microscopic system down there, and it's like an ocean of life, it has more life than the ocean does, the ocean's like a desert compared to the soil, and I'm like, wow, and, uh, and so, and, and these microbes are interacting with the plant roots all the time, and the, the, there's a symbiotic, relate, you know, big word, buzzword, relationship, there's a symbiotic relationship between the plant root and these microbes, and, and healthy plants depend on microbes in, the, in a natural setting. So this is the way the natural, God designed this world and for plants to work. So why, instead of trying to, you know, it made sense, instead of trying to do something totally different, try to understand that system and work with it. And so 2003 is my epiphany moment. And so I finished, I went, uh, after the, the, the he, he died, 
I, uh, they had a little farm there that he used to work. And so I did that, and I started getting some results. And John Proviance helped me, because I went and found him in a nursing home. He was much older but this time. And I drug him back, and I said, hey, you're going to have to teach me some of this stuff. And, I, and he was an old guy, and he was kind of you know, old codgery, and he was, you know, wasn't letting go of his information too willingly. And I was just prying him every day, you know, Tell, how do you know this? I know you're not a scientist. How do you know all this stuff, you know? And, uh, and he, he finally coughed it up, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you some of the books that he showed me to, you know, he got me to read. And really, it's changed my whole idea about farming. Um, and then, um, what was the next thing? Uh, so that went well. Then uh, I started doing um, acre from 2004 to 2011. I did Acres conferences. Everybody heard of Acres USA? Okay, Acres USA, they have a conference every December, like the first week in December. I really recommend you go. That's when I started learning. That's where some of these books came from. They're a publishing house, and I bought the books from Acres USA, and, um, and I started going to their conferences. And they're very, they're for the big guys. They're not really for the small guys, but they're for the big guys. But still, you can learn a lot because they're very science-orientated. There's a lot, of con a lot of small farming and you know, organic farming conferences out there. Most of them are geared towards practical knowledge. This Acres is more geared towards the science. So... I like the practicals conferences, you know, you get a lot out of them, but Acres is kind of in a realm of its own because it provides you with some of the science. And it's layman's science. They know, we're, you know, they know that you're not a doctorate in you know, biology or stuff like that. So you can understand it. So I started going to Lakers conference, and I still go to I went to one this year, and I, you know, I, I have, I, like I've been to four or five of them now. And then in 2005, I went to a Neil Kinsey conference. He's a soil, he runs a soil lab in Missouri, and that was out in Nebraska. And he does, a, you know, he's into alternative farming. I'm not going to call it organic, but it is alternative. He kind of thinks outside the box. Uh, and then in 2006, I was praying to God, I said, you know, okay, I got, I'm starting to get all this book knowledge and all this conference knowledge. I'm taking notes like you're doing now. And I thought, I got to, you know, I got to graduate here. I mean, you can't spend your whole life taking notes and, uh, you know, going to conferences and reading about it. You got to do it, right? So, um, so I was praying to God, I was like, you know, and my thing was, Okay, but nobody can make a living at small farming, right? I mean, you know, I mean, that went out years ago. You know, and even back then they have, even Ellen White talks about everybody complaining you can't make a living at this, you know, <laughs> back in the 1800s. So, uh, I, you know, I was like, oh, you know, this, what's the point? You know, if you can't really do anything with it, if it's just like a hobby, you know. And anyways, he introduced me to this guy, Daniel Parson. And uh, this is where he farmed. He was on a lease agreement with this townhome community. He's, this is leased land. It's not his. And they had a real attractive lease arrangement where he farmed. And he, his first customer was always the people that lived in the townhome community. And it was a really neat setup. I mean, I haven't seen it replicated much anywhere else. I was, my whole goal, you know, the last couple of years was trying to replicate this in churches. Because it, church is just community, right? And if they have land, why not? Why is it, why is it just sitting there? You know, why not use it? And you, but you have to make it, the hard part is you have to make it so the farmer can make a living. And that's sometimes, people love the idea of a garden, but they don't like, you know, they really can't really, you know, mesh into, yeah, but the guy doing the work has to make a living, you know. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but anyways, this guy was able to make a living. He was, he was put, when I, I first started with him, and I knew him from 2006, and he since moved to South Carolina a couple years ago. But when he, I first started with him, I think he was grossing like 40 grand a year on an acre and a half. And, yeah, on, a, on, an, acre, on an acre and a half, he was grossing enough, like 40 grand a year, and he was keeping, he was net maybe about 20. You know, it's not so great, but it was okay. But by the end of the year, because you always grow and step up your game, and as the community gets to know you, 
you know, that thing, it always comes, you know, they, you get more and more sales and more and more people know you and it takes time. Talk about relationships. Relationships don't happen like that. You just don't get relationships because you hear, hear them in a meeting somewhere, you know, and you think, oh, that's, you know, that's a good word. We, we clued into that word. Relationships take time. They take work. It's not something you just, uh, you know, you got to, to do that, the farmer has to establish trust with the community. They got to get to know him. You just can't instantly have relationships. It takes time, time, time. Okay, and this is what this guy developed. And I thought, man, this would be a great way to, a thing to develop inside the Adventist church community. And it would really, uh, you know, add depth to our health message. I, I really, if you don't get into, or if you don't get into some type of alternative farming, because what they're doing to our food now, even our fruits, grains, nuts, and vegetables, I mean, you know, you could come down to a disease even though you're perfect vegan, you know, Adventist because of what the, the things they're putting on it, the, the, they're splicing genes into the DNA now. I mean, fruits, grains, nuts, and vegetables aren't what they used to be, okay? And you, you, we can have a health message, but pretty soon if we don't clue into the health of the food is only as good as the health of the soil, if we don't clue into that and start teaching that, our health message is going to be obsolete. It's just going to be, it's just going to, you know, be obsolete. And we got to get ahead of this curve. And right now where I feel like as a, you know, sort of a, there's a few pockets here and there, but as a general thing, we're kind of behind the curve. We just think the health message is going to take care of it. Not the way they're growing food nowadays. Okay. Uh, anyway, I uh, went to, uh, I interned there in 2006. 2006, I started going into 2010. I went to Southern Sustainable Agriculture Work Group, SOG for short. That's one of those conferences that uh, is more or less um, for the practical knowledge. And this was for the Southeast region. And, I'm, and every region has them, so find them and, and go to these sort of conferences for practical knowledge, okay? Conferences are great. You rub shoulders. It's not just what you learn in the classroom, but who you meet in the hallways. And there's always somebody there doing what you want to do, you know, or somebody you can help. You're already doing it that you can help do. So conferences are great that way, uh, just like this conference. Um, in 2007, I kind of started Third Angel Farm, and uh, under Daniel's tutelage, I went to another farm about three miles from this one, and I used, because you got to gear up. I mean, if you're going to do this, you got to gear up. you got to buy certain tools. I mean, you got to spend money, right? And um, anyways, I, I did it for, in 2007, and, uh, and I started going to farmer's markets, and I really got the bug, you know, right then, you know, because I'm sort of, I'm, I'm connected to him, the expert, but I'm kind of on my own thing, and I was, I was actually pretty successful the first time I tried it. Uh, then in 2007, I went to uh, the Georgia Organics Conferences, which is another regional conference. It has a lot of practical knowledge. In 2008, uh, 2008 I took as a, a, a land rest year. Uh, that's my own little peculiar trying to work things out, because I do believe the land should rest on a, on a particular seventh year, right? And that was the year I had pegged for the land rest year. I took it off from working the soil, even though I didn't have any owning soil, and instead I just worked on Gaia Garden's compost system, which you don't see here, but they had compost piles, uh, and I worked on that, just sort of making soil instead of working it. Uh, 2009, I was an assistant at Gaia Gardens. They had, that's when Daniel moved to South Carolina to follow his wife to a uh, you know, like a real job. She, she had the real job. He had the farmer job. <laughs> but farming's a real job. Anyway, he had to follow her to South Carolina. She had all the benefits. And, uh, and he started up again there. I mean, he's like, I mean, he's probably in his 15th year organic farming now. And he's just a young guy in his mid-30s. Um, and so another lady came in, Rachel. And we were, good, we were interns together back in 06 with Daniel. And she, she these, they, they were looking for a farmer. I mean, this is the way the agreement worked. When he left, they, see, the farm is going to stay there. It's permanent. It's not just, oh, some enthusiastic person came along. And I was trying to, that's another thing I was trying to sort of explain to the church. I said, 
yeah, I, I'm a, a farm enthusiast, but uh, you want to build, a, you want to set up a structure where the farm stays. People in the church can change, pastors can come and go, farmers can come and go, but the farm stays. It's like connected with the church building, you know what I mean? And that's what they had here. So they shopped for a new farmer, and they got Rachel, and I assisted her in 2009. And then in 2010 and to 2011, I uh, found an Adventist church that had some land. And for the last two years, I've been working uh, on an eighth of an acre uh, in, uh, in Stone Mountain, Georgia, uh, on church-owned land, and, and going to a, a couple of markets a week. And um, last year, we had an eighth of an acre. Eighth of an acre is about 5,500 square feet, okay? I don't know if you have a concept of that. But anyways, 5,500 square feet. You know, what is that, uh, 100 feet by 500, no, 50 feet by 100 feet, right? Something like that. And uh, so kind of get a concept of it that way. But in 5,500 square feet, last year, the first year we did it, because the first year is always a tough, it was just all Bermuda grass, and that's the worst grass to have, Bermuda grass. Uh, it was all Bermuda grass, which means it's a quick growing, gla uh, you know, it, 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 it comes from roots. You, know, you don't need a seed, it'll just sprout from roots. And getting rid of that stuff is a real big pain. I don't think we ever really got rid of it, but... We were able to function around it. And, uh, and, and that was a hard year. I think we gross. And that was another thing the church had to get used to is I said, I'm in this for money. You know, I want to, I want to, it can only work if I'm able to make, sustain myself with it. If you don't teach it in that format, you're really not doing any Adventist young person any favors by keeping it just in the hobby realm or keeping it in the poverty realm. You know, sometimes in our independent ministries, you know, they have a little farm section, but you know, the farm managers like stipends, you know, at, like below the poverty level, and they use the students as kind of like the labor, you know, and it, it's sort of like indentured servitude. So it, I really don't like the way, I think that's why our, our, our agricultural pursuits in, our, in our, some of our independent institutions has kind of tanked is because, uh, you know, it's not really set in a capitalistic format. I mean, we got to make sure, you know, it's some of the, you know, capitalism, capital, free market capitalism, and I'm not talking corporate capitalism, I think they kind of messed things up, but free market sole proprietor capitalism was a financial engine that came in with Protestantism to this country. It made this country what it is. I mean, you can't, I mean, it has run amok because I think of corporate, corporate capitalism, you know, and corporations being treated as uh, individuals under the Constitution, which they're not. They're just shells. They're not individuals. They don't they should have not, they should not, corporations should not have constitutional rights. So I think that's kind of messed up capitalism. But never think capitalism is a wrong-ism. It's a great-ism, and yes, it can run amok, but it has a better chance of fixing itself once it runs, it runs amok than any of the other isms out there, okay? So I'm a free market capitalist, and I was trying to show the church that, you know, you have to operate this in free market capitalism and show our young people that this can be a living you can make a living at this, and it's fun. It's work, but it's fun work. You know, if you enjoy it, if you have that proclivity. Um, and so 2010, uh, we, did, we grossed about, I don't know, $6,000 on 5,500 square feet. Doesn't sound like a lot. And we kind of netted maybe 1,000 out of that. It was, you know, it was the first year. Okay, we kept that at this 2011. We grossed almost $17,000 on an eighth of an acre taking it to two markets a week, sometimes three. We, and, and we netted about 12. Now, that's an eighth of an acre. If you can, you know, if, if those percentages hold and you can, you know, scale that up to maybe a half acre, that'd be times four, right? So where are you looking at? You're talking about grossing uh, uh, four, uh, four times 12, that's 48,000, and netting 24,000 on a half acre. Well, 24,000, I mean, that's bare bones living, but I mean, that's at least... 
something you could probably manage on if you're living, you know, living kind of frugally and tight, you know. Uh, if you had an acre, you could scale that up, and now you're into something that's decent, like a $40,000 net pro, uh, your deal, okay? And you can make, once you get it, in the, you can make, you can, I think you, you can make easy 80 grand on an acre, selling it to urban, you know, sort of metropolitan markets, okay? You can be, you have a farm in the metropolitan area, but, uh, you know, you'd have to come in, you'd have to come in from the outside, maybe have your farm outside, but you need to be able, like within an hour's drive of a, a metropolis that, that can support this kind of stuff, you know, because if you live way out in the country, there's nobody around, there's nobody around for an hour's drive, then it's hard to find customers sometimes. You gotta, you gotta take your stuff to where there's people, okay? And that's a good thing because now I can interact, and that was the good thing when the church, and I was trying to show the church, the church didn't get money out of this, you know, boo-hoo, you know? <laughs> I said, I got the money because I had to pay, myse uh, pay my, uh, myself, but what the church got was really positive PR. I mean, you know, they're, they're now, and I, and I always, uh, always, uh, you know, tried to show them. I said, you know, that the, the positive PR is, you know, you could put a value, dollar value on that. I mean, you know, think about how much it costs to send Dan, Daniel Revelation seminars to, you know, 5,000 homes and maybe get one half a percent show up, you know. I said, with this, I'm seeing a thousand, a thousand people a week are seeing my sign. I got the church's name on the front of the vendor. About a hundred people a week come in and I have a conversation with and I sell stuff with. And about 10 or 15 of those people say, hey, what's the word third angel mean? And I got some tracks sitting on the table. I said, well, you know, Adventist Church has a health message, and we're, they're, they're sponsoring this farm. They've been nice enough to, you know, pretty much give me a rent-free use of the, the land. And, uh, and they're sponsored, and they're committed to it, and they're part of the community. And, well, that bodes well for the community presence in the church. You're always talking about, what can we do to serve the community? Well, yeah, we can do blood pressures, you know, one, one week in a month. But why not have a working farm connected to the church that you can have food for them every week during the growing season? And then the farmer's able to do it because he's able to pay himself, you know. And that way you're showing young people that, hey, they can make a living at this too. You know what I mean? Instead of having it, a lot of times churches, they want to go the cheap route. So they'll find somebody who's retired, already made their money, and he's just living off his uh, fixed income. And so they go out there and putz around. But you're not really showing young people that, you know, that, well, we can't really farm for a living. You've got to go make money first, and then you can farm, you know. Or they get some empty nester mom you know, who's looking for some, you know, something to take the void out from the children living home, and she does it, you know, and they get it all for, you know, it's all done as sort of a free thing. You're really not doing young Adventists any favors by doing it that method, is my opinion. Okay, you need to show that it's a money maker, just like any other decent job out there, okay? And the church can foster that without making the money, but get the positive PR by promoting this. And people that are doing it, like this town hall community, prices didn't go down that much when the bottom fell out of the housing market. Because they had this farm there. People want to live there. There's a waiting line for, to buy these homes. Because they want to live right there where that farm is. Because they can walk out their back door. And even though they don't buy the produce, they still like jogging around it. They still just like the way it looks. I mean, everybody loves a garden. You know what I mean? So anyway, that's me. Now, I want to ask you, I want to see a show of hands. We've got to get out of here at 1030. I want to see a show of hands of how many people, um, so you kind of feel like you know me now? <laughs> Scott Arrington, struggling. Independent, sole proprietor, capitalistic gardener. Okay? Adventist. I am an Adventist. <laughs> um, all right, what I want to, uh, I got my little notes here. What I want to do is I want to show a hands of, okay, I don't know why you're here. I know you, I know you know me now, but I don't know you guys. So, uh, are we, anybody, I'll show a hands. Who's just in here uh, just to take notes and, you know, they're kind of, they don't have any space, you know, really, but it sounded like an interesting class. 
Okay, one. Okay, who's in here because they got, uh, they got a backyard they want to turn into a farm? Like, I'm talking backyard, I'm like 400 square feet or less. Okay, three or four or five people. Who's in here because uh, they got like a quarter acre they want to develop? Quarter acre or less, okay. And how about, who's got three acres or less they want to develop? Somewhere between, okay. So we got some of those. And now, who, hey, who's, who's in here has got three acres or more? that they want to develop. Wow, big guys. Okay, I want to, I want to, now I want to zero on the big guys because I think you get some out of this class, but I'm going to kind of gear it towards, I, I didn't know there was going to be so many like that. I was going to, I'm kind of going to gear it towards the smaller, like less than three acre folks, okay? But that doesn't mean you need, yeah, yeah. Uh, the reason, it, 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 because of the equipment you're going to need and the cost go up is the more acres you have, okay? That's the kind of the, dividing line and that's why I wanted to get a feel. Uh, if you're doing uh, backyard farming uh, with 400 square feet or less, which is, you know, what's that, 20 by 20, you know, you can do it pretty much with hand tools, okay? You get out there and chop, chop, chop and incorporate stuff with a little hoe and stuff like that, okay? You can do with hand tools. If you're trying to do a quarter acre or less, somewhere between a quarter acre and, you know, 400 square feet, uh, you need a good tiller. A good rototiller. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying rototilling is great. I'm going to get into that. But you need a good rototiller. Um, you need, uh, uh, I always, the one I like and the one I lucked out and bought the first time, I didn't have to go through a lot of them, was a Sears Craftsman. I'll just give you that right now. Sears Craftsman is good. It has a counter-rotating tine. It's easy to operate. Some of these tillers, man, they'll beat you to death. Okay? Especially women trying to get out there. I, 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 it's hard for me, even me to do it. Much less, I can't imagine somebody with a little less upper body strength trying to do it. You know, it's, they, they grab and they want to take off on you. But a counter-rotating tine tiller, Sears Craftsman, the wheels go this way, the tines go reverse way, so it's just, you, just, it can, you can do it with one hand practically. Just a great design. So Sears Craftsman, it costs about $800, but hey, just think about all the food, you're gonna, food money you're going to be saving, okay? Um, but you know, don't be afraid of investing this money. I mean, when I got, when I was when I was at, I was down here. This is my backyard here. But uh, when I was over there at that uh, eighth of an acre, you know, I had the Adventist uh, uh, board member because I wasn't really a member of the church, and he was always going. You know, he we had constant kind of battles because he was always wanting to do the cheapest thing. You know, and I'm like, you know, and I said, you don't have to spend any money. I'm not trying to spend the church's money. I'm, the church doesn't have to spend a dime. They're letting me use the land. That's what, you know, and, and other than that, they, it doesn't have to, and just let me make the money. You know what I mean? And I, and I said, you know, let's just buy, let's just buy the things we need. Don't cheap out on this because it's going to pay off. It's f about faith. You know, if you just try to go cheap, 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 you're really not showing a lot of faith. I knew if I spent $500 on a tiller or, you know, $300 on a tool, that if I could go to market and sell it and grow good food, I could make that back. And you know that sometimes people don't really, they just think it's a, they just look at the initial outlay. But if you're, if people are loving your stuff and you, you can make it back. You'll make it back plus. You know, God will give you the increase. You know what I mean? Um, and uh, so you're, uh, for, uh, a quarter acre or less, you're going to need a good tiller. Now, if you've got three acres to a quarter acre, you're probably going to have to step up into like a $5,000 two-wheel tractor, they call them. It's not a four-wheel tractor. It's called a two-wheel tractor. And you, you look at it and you think, oh, that's a tiller. Well, no, it's kind of a, it's more than a tiller, but it's less than a tractor. You know, it's almost a tractor. It's only got two wheels, though. And a two-wheel tractor, you kind of operate like a tiller, but it, it's, a, it's a PTO. It's a, a prime, what does a PTO stand for? Um, power takeoff. It's got a power takeoff, 
and uh, just like a tractor does, and you can put any appendage on the front of that or the back, or you can reverse the handles around and you can have it on the back that you want. BCS uh, and Grillo make the two, they're made over in Europe, but they're the two two-wheel tractors here. Here, That's three acres or less, and you're probably going to need that to, if you're going to go three acres to a quarter acre, okay? Since I was only an eighth an acre, I managed to just use a tiller. But, you know, if I was going to step up my game to a half acre, then I would probably need to invest in a BCS. And that's $5,000, but I'll make it back. Don't worry, okay? And if you've got three acres or more, well, then you're, in, you're going to have to sort of change your farming, and you're into the four-wheel tractor range, three acres or more, okay? This my, that's my opinion, okay? All right, let's, uh, uh, so that's why I asked you about that. Uh, so we got a good sort of scattering of all those. Okay, now I want to say, um, okay, now I, I don't have time to go through everybody. What, what, what do you hope to learn here? I mean, is anybody willing to, you know, and then maybe some of you who are in agreement don't have to put up your hand, but just, you know, differences. Yes, sir. Balcony, private, like container. Okay, are you presently gardening? Yes. Okay, that's a good thing if you can show them by experience, you know. Okay, and uh, some hands over here. Why are you here, ma'am? Annie. Like to learn. You know me. <laughs> I can read it. <laughs> Right. Proper pesticide management. Oh, okay. And proper um, the making of um, fer fertilizers. So making of fertilizers? So that we can um, avoid chemical fertilizer. How to fertilize without using chemicals? Uh, we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah, that's going to cover it. And what it. Uh, 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 so you said something. Oh, you live where? Cayman Islands. Cayman Islands, and you live? Alberta. Canada, okay. <laughs> kind of way. Okay. It's a little different. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Yay! And, uh, about six uh, miles from about a town of 20,000 people. And we do a lot of health ministry. And so we want to eventually build a home on that property. Yeah. Maybe someday have a wellness center. But mm -hmm. we would like to, one of the first things we want to do is it's mostly sandy land. So I just want to learn how I can. Um, Where is it at? In Canada. Oh. Canada. Saskatchewan's sandy, huh? Nothing. It's a black sand. It's kind of like it's a, a land trapped area, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. A lot of people say you can teach us how to grow this. So we would like to actually rent out. Oh, yeah. And do some training. So I'm here to find out how to teach. Yeah, 100, 160 acres is, well, you need a good PowerPoint, I think. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I never knew about these things until three or four years ago, and then I, now I'm hooked on them. You know, like they were my notes. Because I, I don't, I can't give a talk reading from a, <laughs> I mean, I got to like, well, that's what I, I want to talk about that. Yes, ma'am. Okay. You're more orchard crops then. You're more perennials. I mean, they, they, the tree, you don't take the trees up every year. They're not annuals. You're, you're, yeah, they're, they're more perennials. They're orchard crops. They're trees. They're fruit trees. Herbs and, okay, well, you're, yeah. Right. Uh, this is kind of geared towards aggressive annual vegetables, okay? That's kind of my forte. I do have a little information on orchards and stuff like that, but... 
Oh, okay. Okay. Well, you know, that gives me an idea. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. So I was actually thinking of container gardens. Yeah. Then after listening to what you said, I'm like, my son's in the house. Oh, out in the land. Right, right. And so he can actually do that and incorporate Okay. And, 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 and I was in the same boat. You know, I was taking these classes at Acres, and I was like, man, I was getting all jazzed up. I was like, but how do I start? Well, I'm going to tell you, and this is from my own personal experience, and I can recommend it. I found Daniel Parsons, who was doing it for a living, and I volunteered my time with him. And I, didn't, and, and, I, and I went out there, and I was a serious volunteer. I wasn't just out there like, well, you know, I'm not getting paid anything, so I don't really have to do anything. Uh, uh, you know, I was out there, and I, w- I mean, I put in some hard hours with him. And he was, it, you know, now, when you do this, farmers are very, like, standoffish sometimes. Because everybody comes up to them and kind of, oh, well, we love a garden. Oh, we want a garden. But you never really know a person until you're willing, what type of time they're willing to commit. So when he, he was like that with me. He was like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, anytime, come on out, you know. And, uh, and, but I did. You know, I came out, and I was like there at 8 o'clock, and I was ready to work. I had my work clothes on. I didn't come out, you know, with my street clothes on. And I said, okay, what do we do, you know? And, uh, and he put me to work, and I worked, like, volunteered with him three days a week that first year. No money. Three days a week, eight-hour days, and I was able to do that. And uh, so I, and, and we became really good friends. We're still good friends to this day. And I helped him that first year up his game because now he could do more with, you know, the labor. And so the trade was, now, he wasn't abusing me. You know, I was, he wasn't expecting free labor. I, was, I said, hey, if you'll take the time to explain why you're doing stuff, why we're doing stuff, I'll give you the free labor. I'll, instead of paying you for your knowledge, I'll work for you for your knowledge if you'll be willing to explain. Because a lot of times people don't want to explain themselves. They just want to get out there and do the work. And, I agree, and that's sometimes you have to do that. You don't have time to talk. You know, you got to get things done. But he was willing to work with me on that. And so the first year I did that. And that anybody who's wanting to learn, you can't learn it all just taking this class and listening to me go on and on and on about farming, okay? What you, what you need to do is find you somebody in your local area who's small farming, Organically, you don't want somebody who's or, or, or at least going towards organic, right? Who's doing it and making a living at it. That's the key. You're not just somebody who has a hobby. You want, to see, you want somebody who's making a living at it. That's where you're going to learn because these people don't have time to play around. I mean, they're trying to put bread on the table just like you do when you go to work. You know, you, you, you got to be serious about it. You got to be good at your game. So if you've got some time, one, two, three days a week, half a day, two times a week, whatever, Introduce yourself to that smaller organic farmer in your area and say, I want to volunteer my time and help you this year. And be on time. Show up when you say you're going to show up. Just don't show up whenever you feel like it. Get on a schedule so he can plan his work day around you being there. Okay? Any, yeah. 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 Well, I'm going to show you pictures of people that are husband and wife that are making a living at it. Okay. I'm going to show you pictures of either the husband or the wife is doing it, and the other one has like a job with benefits. You know, that that can work too. You know, uh, but you whatever you do when you want to learn from people in the real world, the practical knowledge, you want to you want to you want to volunteer at a farm, not just come to classes. Okay. You got to volunteer at a farm. 
uh, if you really want to learn this. Okay, the spiritual side of this. Our fundamental, I read this in our 27, 28 fundamental beliefs. It might be 22 now. I'm not sure where, where that next one got inserted. But anyway, this was from an old uh, 27 Adventist beliefs book. So it might be 22. But it's the, the chapter on stewardship. Remember that one? And, 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 and I read this and I thought, well, here it is. Here's a, here's a manifesto for uh, we to, us to do this stuff. You know, it says, the industrial, and I thought this was so insightful and so good, I had to share it with you guys. It says, the industrial revolution has, all, uh, uh, has also resulted in air, water, and land, uh, and land pollution. All those three get polluted in the industrial revolution. Now, a lot of our lives are, you know, we spend money that causes pollution somewhere else in the world. It causes uh, slave labor somewhere else in the world. You know, when you go buy your cheap Nikes, I mean, some poor person over in China probably had to slap those together. You know what I mean? Uh, when you buy uh, conventional foods at the grocery store, think about, talk about relationships, you know, think about what went into growing that food. You know, what did they have to spray on it? Uh, who had to gr actually get out there and pick it? You know, uh, you know, food has a history. It's not just sitting there on the grocery store. It didn't just, you know, show up on the grocery, st uh, grocery store shelves magically overnight. I mean, you know, that had to get transported. And, you know, sometimes they say like 1,500 miles is what the average food. And by the time you, you go, know, transports till you eat it. Uh, and, uh, you know, 1,500 miles. And, you know, it's, it's anywhere from 5 to 15 days old from harvest, okay, from the t when you get it at the grocery store shelf. So think about that. Technology, in some instances, has manipulated nature rather than managed it wisely. That is so true, especially with farming. We've learned how to, corporations have learned how to make money at farming by doing away with managing it wisely. You know, it's geared towards the bottom line. Industrial farming is geared towards the bottom line. It's not geared towards your health. It's geared towards yield. That is what they want in modern industrial farming. They don't want yield. I mean, they don't want nutrition. They don't want human health. They want yield, and they're going to get their and they want to, you know, uh, they're going to get their yield putting on industrial chemical uh, fertilizers. Okay, and they bypass nature and what God designed. Okay, and the nutrition in the vegetable suffers. Okay, the nutrient content of the vegetable suffers. You get something that looks like a tomato, but it tastes like nothing. You know, we've all had that experience, right? Yeah. Um, Exactly. Uh, your chance of coming down with Parkinson's disease if you're a farm worker and you're spraying all those chemicals on is like 70% above the national average. That's a fact. Uh, and, 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 you know, that's just spraying it on. Imagine, you know, then you take it and you wash it off, but can you, you know, some of that stuff, you know, you don't get everything off. There's certain things that are a little easier to get off than others, and some of that stuff is systemic. And I don't care even if you're able to wash it all off in your sink. Uh, because of the way it's grown, it doesn't have the vitamin C it used to have. It doesn't have the calcium it used to have. It doesn't have the taste. You know, that used to have. Um, here, it says, here, it gets down to the nitty gritty here. We are stewards of this world and should do everything to maintain life at, at all levels. Well, that's what I was, when I began this talk, I talked about the microbes in the soil, right? Little invisible microscopes, you can't even see them with the naked eye, visible microbes that are interacting. Are we responsible for that life? Are we, are we responsible for maintaining that life? That's the whole point of this whole, my whole presentation is, Soil food web, you know, think about the life in your soil. All, even the little microscopic life that you can't even see. Uh, we're, so we're supposed to maintain life at all levels because when you throw in your harsh chemicals and your miracle grows and your pesticides, you've just wiped out all your microscopic life. Now that plant is totally dependent on you and what you throw on it from the store. 
okay? It, you'll get something, and it makes it grow, and it does its thing. They figured that out. But you've just gotten rid of all this little fragile life in your soil that used to be the thing that helped the plant, okay? So we're really not following this edict using chemical agriculture, okay? Um, by keeping the ecological balance intact. In his uh, coming advent, Christ will destroy those who destroy the earth. Mm -hmm. and from this perspective, Christian stewards are not only responsible for their own possessions, but for the world around them. And that's the whole thing. You know, it's not just about what lands in my backyard. It's about how, what do I do today that affects generations to come. You know, are we, when we go to the store and we purchase carrots grown conventionally, do you realize all the pesticides and all the fertilizers that went into growing that, uh, chemical fertilizer went into growing that carrot that you buy and, you know, you go home and juice. Anyway, about 80% of that fertilizer ended, ended up in the watershed. The, the plant only uses about 20% 20, 20 of the chemical fertilizer. So you're wasting money, and not only that, you've you're, you got to think about your, are, what are you doing for your future? What are you doing for your grandkids? They're going to inherit an earth that, hey, we got our food, but... We don't leave much for you in the future generation. You know, we, got, we were able to live and, you know, maintain somewhat of a good existence. But the things we did and how we did them have screwed up 20 years down the line, 30 years down the line, 100 years down the line. You know, are we really thinking ahead? With organic farming, you've you got a clear conscience or organic type farming. You, in fact, your farm, when you're organic farming, instead of you getting worse every year, you have to put more, equal amount of inputs or more inputs on. Organic farming, your inputs get less and less and less year by year, and the soil gets better and better and better and able to grow better and better food. That's a, that's a huge difference between the two, conventional farming and organic farming, is, is when you leave the land, you leave it in a better state for your children than when you found it. With conventional farming, you know, you've seen it. They farm out of land and they move on to something else. Civilizations, civilizations have died because the topsoil has gone away. They just abuse the soil and, it, and you can't feed the people anymore and you have to move to another spot or you just fizzle out altogether as a civilization. Whole civilizations have gone, you know, gone away. We don't have them anymore, people, because they just wasted their topsoil by intensive farming that never put anything back. So think about that. I mean, these are dire consequences. Um, um, okay, this was uh, back in, uh, this was the front of, did everybody remember this quarterly? It was a couple of years ago? And oh, man, doesn't this look wonderful? Health, this is pretty much about our health message, this whole quarterly. You know, three months we learned about our health message. That's why I came in Adventist, because of the health message, right? And look at this cover, though. I mean, a little church in the background, you know, and you got, uh, you know, a guy with flowers and all these vegetables, you know, young lass here. And you just think, oh, man, this is just the way, it's, the way it is, you know? This is, this is the Adventist health message. Well, if you, most Adventist health messages, here at the top you have, you know, if you're doing it in the U.S., you have to dress up in hazmat suits. To spray the stuff on. It's not this. It's that. Right. Uh, if, you do, if you're growing, getting stuff from third world countries or, you know, away from the U.S. where they don't have some of the laws, then you're putting this lady at risk for Parkinson's and Carson, cancer, carcinogenic things and cancer. She's, they don't suit them up. They just spray it on and no mask or nothing. And that's where you, the food you're buying comes from this. You know, here's dust, at, you know, uh, you know and, and there's gas, there's a, a ammonia gas going into a, a cornfield. And here's some sort of insecticidal dust going onto some crop, soybeans it looks like. Uh, here's strawberries. Now this is, this is the one I got off the internet. Look, here, do you want to eat food that has a sign like this outside of it? You know, don't even go in here, it's too toxic. You know, you risk your health just going into the, the strawberry field. This is one, that, that picture I actually took myself down in Florida. And I thought, oh, I want to get a picture of this. Got booms out, you know, going through the strawberry patch. 
And I stopped and I was taking pictures and the guy turned off the tractor and folded up the arms. He thought I was probably from the EPA or something, I don't know. <laughs> but he got scared. You know, if you can't do something out in the open, if there's no transparency, why are you doing it? You know what I mean? What, what, what are you trying to hide, you know? Uh, but so there's some sort of reality gap going on. We need, to, we need to really realize that the way we spend our food dollar either supports this or it can support something like this. But you've got to be aware of that. And are you willing to pay? You know, maybe this is a little cheaper, but are you, to, are you willing to pay a little more for something like this? Or do you want to just get the cheap stuff that's grown like this? And then not only think of your own health, but think of the health, the way this, it leaves this world for the generations to come. Yeah. I live over in Plant City in, in, in the middle of a bunch of strawberry fields, and there were signs all over like that. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for that. Second witness. Yeah. I'm not, see, I'm not just up here hyperboling, wow. exaggerating, you know, it, it, it's really out there. Uh, okay, here's the soil food web. Okay, we're getting into the nuts and bolts. One more hour before we have to get out of here. Is everybody good? You need to take a break? Bathroom? Five minutes? No? Want to keep going? We got one more hour. You interested? Okay. Uh, okay, this is a simple, simple, simple picture of the soil food web. Everybody ever heard of that term, soil food web? You have. Where did you hear that term? Just reading. Just reading? Okay. Do you have a, you have a concept of what it means again? Well, we want to protect those things so that it will enhance. Right. Okay. Someone who was an organic farm teacher that I knew. Talked about the soil food web. So two folks have heard of it. The rest of you haven't even heard of it? I have an article you sent to me. Uh-huh. Okay, well, hopefully, you know, at the end of this presentation, I have a little better understanding, but you need to keep reading, keep learning about it. Uh, this is, I, I put this one, I want to talk about this first, because if I don't get to anything else, I want you to at least uh, understand a little bit about what's going on in the world beneath our feet, okay? Okay, this is a soil food web. And basically what this is, is you've got, you've got your, over there on the far end, I got a little thing here, over there on the far end, uh, right there, you, you've got living plants and you've got uh, dead plant matter, okay? And it doesn't just sit there. If it, if, if it didn't get eaten up, we'd be, you know, by this time, we'd be like over our heads in dead plant matter, okay? Uh, so the things that, uh, and sometimes they're bad things. They attack living stuff. But a lot of this stuff gets attacked and chewed up by small stuff. And basically that, your two, basically, your two microscopic things are... Uh, bacteria and fungi, okay? And then you got these little small nematodes which are, which are really like, they're called non-segmented worms. I'm talking they're small. They're like less than a tenth of a millimeter. I mean, that's how small they are. A millimeter is pretty small. Okay, and now these are root-eating nematodes. Some of these things are bad, but guess what? You're all, a lot of these things are good. In fact, of all the life in the soil, in the, at the microscopic level, and at all levels. These are just basically, here's your really small things, this second trophic level. Here's your sort of medium-sized things that you can barely make out with the naked eye. These things are only see through a microscope, right? These, this first tier here. These things are a little bigger, and they actually feed on the smaller stuff, just like a food chain, except this is a food net. Because not all these, in a food chain, you know, little fish eats the big fish, eats the bigger fish, eats the bigger, it's just like a nice long, like one line. But in a soil food web, different things are able to eat different things. And like earthworms, they don't have, really have an earthworm here. Earthworms should be out here, sort of above these nematodes. 
and then you have your birds. But like earthworms, which we all know, they're actually kind of here on the soil fluid web. Well, guess what? They don't, they, they don't get eaten by, uh, they don't eat this. They jump back and they're after the bacteria. Basically, I call earthworms like the blue whales of the soil because you know how blue whales eat plankton, which is like, you know, it's like, you know, just little bitty plant matter, you know, it's like it's microscopic almost. Well, earthworms eat bacteria. They ingest a lot of soil in order to get that bacteria and then poop it out the back end, which is called worm castings, which we like. But they're really not after the soil, they're after the bacteria on the soil particles and on the organic, on the organic matter. And then you have your bigger ones here. These are, you can barely see with the naked eye. These are visible with the naked eye, no problem. And then you got the things that eat these. And so everything kind of eats the smaller thing, but then there's all these predator-prey relationships that kind of cross over and go back and forth. And sometimes, you know, uh, bacteria can take out bad nematodes, you know? So you have bacteria eating the bigger thing, you know? So it's, it's an intricate web is basically what I'm saying. And it, it's kind of based on size, you know, microscopic, uh, barely visible, visible, and then really visible. So that's your soil food web. Now you need that you, as, a, as an organic or a, I don't want to say organic, it kind of gets overused. But I want to say, as a biological friendly farmer, I like that's what I like. Biologically friendly, as a biologically friendly farmer, um, you want to know about this and you want to promote this because these things, 90% of this life, is actually there. It, it actually helps the plant grow. It's only 10% of it's bad. Now, see, when I first started, I thought all things that were microscopic were germs and they were bad. They were just out to get us, right? So I had to throw poison on it to kill them before they killed me. You know. Uh, but that's not true. 90% of the, we, couldn't, we wouldn't be alive sitting in this room today if it wasn't for good bacteria in our systems helping us digest food, okay? Same thing in the soil. The soil, you know how you look at the, uh, when we go in our health talks, we talk, and I learned this in heaven, you know, you, your, your small intestines got the little um, feli, you know, and that's actually what, you know, introduces the, what's ever in your intestines into the bloodstream, right? Well, think of this as the soil, I had a better picture, but the soil is, uh, the plant's stomach. It's got all the bacteria and everything and it's digesting stuff so the plant can take it up with its feli, the roots. Same thing, okay? Um, so you want to have an active soil that is able to digest them so your plants can thrive. And you want to be aware of this and manage it and not try to do something completely different with, you know, baby blue liquids. Um, soil food web. In a teaspoon of fertile soil, highly active, biologically active soil, you got millions, maybe even trillions of bacteria. Like I said, 90% of them are helpful. And the 90% that are helpful will take care of the bad guys because it's in their best interest to protect the plant. They have a relationship with the plant. The plant gives, what is the plant doing all day long? Got its solar panels out there making energy, right? Top of the leaf makes energy, the bottom of the left, a leaf drinks in carbon dioxide that's rising. For the carbon dioxide goes up into the atmosphere. You know, it, you know, it's not really, it's a very infinitesimal part of our atmosphere right now that we breathe. But when the sun comes up and it starts baking the soil, the atmosphere, you know, the carbon dioxide volatizes. goes from, called the carbon cycle, goes from a solid state to a gas state. No liquid state in between like water, but it goes solid to gas. And see, the bottom of the leaf has had two-fold puncture. The top makes the energy, makes the sugars from the sun, and the bottom has little holes in it called stomata, and it drinks in that carbon volatizing off the soil, okay? So in a teaspoon of fertile soil, you got, uh, and what makes all that happen, uh, or is a big part of that happening, is bacteria, your fungal hypha, which are, see the bacteria are like that, there are millions and trillions of them, and the hypha are like little tiny 
threads. They're really fragile, okay? The fungal hypha. Uh, and there's hundreds of feet of that in a teaspoon of soil. Protozoa, there's thousands of protozoa in a fertile teaspoon of soil. And then you got, um, you got good nematodes. Anything, anybody know nematodes can actually be helpful in the garden? Anybody think that when they came in this class? Yeah, anybody know that? There's actually helpful nematodes. They're not all bad. And here's an, I like this picture because here's, well, we'll get into that one. But anyway, there's dozens of good nematodes. And, and they say a good, uh, uh, you know, you should, in, a, in a shovel full of good soil, you should count maybe five or uh, fifty. What is it? Something like 20 earthworms or something like that. And, 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 and you know, you got to do that at the right time. If it's too hot, you're not going to find them because they don't like the heat. They kind of go down. But it, it, after it's rain, it's a little cool. You should be able to count, you know, like 20 earthworms in a big old shovel full of soil. Just throw it out in your pavement and count them. If you don't have those earthworms, if you don't have the earthworms, so you say, well, I don't have a microscope. How am I going to know? Well, if you don't have the earthworms, you, that's a good sign that the rest of the stuff's not there because, the, you know, the earthworms depend on all the other stuff being there. So if, if the earthworms are not there, then all that stuff you can't see is probably not there either. If the earthworms are there, then all that stuff you can't see probably is there and you've got active soil. So don't think of earthworms in and of them by themselves. Think of earthworms and not only are they good for the soil, but all the things they represent in the food chain, a healthy food, uh, a healthy food soil food web. Okay. Um, now, where all... You know, where, are all, where is the majority of this life in the soil? Well, these are all roots. This is a root. 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 In something they call the rhizosphere, which goes out from like right next to the cells of the root, all the way out to about, about five millimeters, which is not very far, you have this area. And what's happening is all day long, this is an amazing thing. The plant is making sugar, right? Energy, like stored sunshine. And what does it do with that energy? Well, you know, first, what, what does it do with that energy? Question. Hmm? Huh? Lengthens the roots. Okay, growth. Cell division, growth again. Anybody else? You know where I'm going with this? Those are good answers. They're right answers. Well, the photosynthesis is what makes the... Sugar, yeah, that's the whole process. It's stored energy, stored sunshine. Uh, well, the one question, the one I didn't hear, all those were good. They're true too. Cell division, cell and growth is lengthening the roots, lengthening making fruits. All that cell division, all that goes takes energy, and that's what those leaves are for. But guess what? Sixty, that only about what is it? Thirty-four percent, fifty to thirty-four percent goes into growth. Where does the other sixty-six percent go? Huh? Some of it's stored, but a lot of it is exuded. The plant pushes it out the root. They call it root exudates. That's a good word, root exudates. Learn that word. Uh, you can look it up on the internet, root exudates. And what it does is 66% of that energy that it's stored through the day, at night it'll push it out through the roots. And what is it doing? It's trying to establish relationship with the, with the soil biology. Well. If, there, if, if the way you farm has made it so there's no soil biology, it's, 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 it's calling on a home that nobody's, it's calling on a, you know, an organism that's not there, okay? And then it, and it goes south, and then you're stuck on a chemical, you know, sort of hamster wheel. You know, you have to do the chem, huh? Dependence. Yeah, you're stuck, yeah, that's what I'm looking for, a chemical dependence. But if you can promote this, you can let the, uh, have fertile soil with lots of uh, ac biological activity, then the, the, when, the root, when the plant pushes this, uh, its root exudates, its carbon that it's made, the sugar that it's made all day, out its roots, guess what? 
it can attract good bacteria into the roots. Why would a plant want to do that? Anybody know? Protection. Protection is one. Very good. Anybody else? A plant wants to have the good biology around its root system. What's another reason? Well, the other reason is, one of the other reasons is, there's probably a, a, hundreds of them, but one of the other reasons is a plant is able to digest things that are Just because you've got calcium in your soil doesn't mean it's a plant available form of calcium, okay? And that comes into soil tests. We'll talk about that later. But, um, but all your biology, your bacteria, and your fungi are in this rhizosphere, and that's where the majority of it is, is they eat other things. They don't just eat what's the, the, the sugar, the plant. It's like dessert for a microbe, right? The things being pushed out the roots. That's easy food. But it goes out at times and it eats rocks and, and, and it eats other organisms. And then it comes in and eats this easy sugar food the plant's given it. And, and in return, it poops, it spits, it sweats, it dies. And those, those, those nutrients locked up in their bodies, just like we when we urinate or when we poop, those are nutrients. I mean, that's, you know, that's excess stuff we, want to, we need to get rid of. But, you know, something else in this world might think it is, is food. Okay? And that's, what, and that's why the plant likes that. They like to attract some of these good bacteria because they can digest things that the plant, can't digest, the plant root can't digest. So they put out the sugar and say, hey, come to me, and I'll give you some easy sugar. I'll give you some dessert, and in return live in my rhizosphere and poop and sweat all these uh, things you've digested that are now available to me. Before, the plant root laying up against a, a clay particle, there's iron on that clay particle, right? And plant one says, I need some iron right now. Well, and you know, sometimes it needs iron at a specific point in its life and then it doesn't need anymore. Are you going to be aware of that? Probably not, you know? But if you have your, your energy there, the plant can call on that, uh, can say, man, I need that iron, but I can't get it off that particle. It's too, it's too locked on to that clay particle or that hum humus part particle. What I can do is I can change, they can actually change the chemistry of their exudates to attract microbes that are good at digesting iron. And then they can, and then they'll attract those microbes to the rhizosphere. And, um, and now the, 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 bac the bacteria or the fungi has the uh, iron, it ate it and it, and, it, and it doesn't need it, it poops it out and now it's in the rhizosphere and the plant can have it. It's, in a, it's complexed with a carbon. When it's mineralized, it's in, inorganic. Now, organic doesn't always mean good. You know, if you're a chemist, organic means something totally different than if you're like in the, just reading home gar garden magazine. Organic means complex with carbon. Inorganic means not complex with carbon. Okay, so when it complexes it with carbon by running it through this little digestive system and pooping it out, then the plant can use it. It's complex with carbon. When it was locked onto a particle, it, the plant couldn't access it. Some things the plant can access, but not everything. Some things are too locked on. Some things are more soluble and they're not locked on as tight. Okay, and when they're locked on too tight, that's when it pushes out the exudates and the bacteria and the fungi in the rhizosphere can save the day. And the reason I bring this up really is to, sh to point out that the majority of your biological activity is going to be right in this five millimeters around your roots, okay? That's where, you know, that's the metropolis of the soil, you know, where all the, all the bacteria and fungi congregate because that's what the plant wants. Um, uh, here's another picture of a plant root with, uh, these are little bacteria on the, you know, and there's a little root hair coming out. Uh, are rootlets. 
that's important, rootlets. When you pull up your plant, you want to see lots of little rootlets. You just don't want to see big roots. You know, you want the little guys, you know, because that's where all the absorption is done, okay? Uh, and they're all around, and this has to be pretty small for the bacteria to show up that size. So that's a pretty small rootlet. And, uh, but you can see that they're all dotted all around that rhizosphere. Okay, yeah, there's some different shapes of bacteria. I just sort of put this in here to kind of introduce you to the cast of characters in the soil. Um, you know, spherical ones, sort of tubular ones, and then squiggly ones. And they have real scientific names, but we don't need to get into all that. Uh, and then here are some functions of bacteria in the soil. And the, we're, when bacteria, we're talking, remember, there were millions and trillions of them, okay? This is sort of the most widely little independent living unit in the soil uh, and, and, and most prolific. Uh, there's differences between aerobic bacteria and microbes and anaerobic bacteria and microbes. Okay, aerobic means oxygen loving, anaerobic means oxygen hating. Okay, in fact, they might even die because of oxygen. I mean, it's not just something they hate, they, they might be toxic to them. Uh, we want to concern ourselves with trying to promote aerobic microbes, okay? Uh, anaerobic is when, you know, things ferment and putrefy and things like that. You don't want that happening in the soil. And, um, and also it gives off, it not only smells foul, but it gives off, some of those gases are very harmful gases and they actually end up killing the rest of your good biology in your soil when you got things putrefying in your soil. And a lot of times, uh, how, how can you use that knowledge? Well, don't till so deep. If you till organic matter in really deep, it gets down there, there's really a lot of oxygen, and it just putrefies down there and ferments. And it gives off gases that kill everything above it, you know? So uh, I always, uh, I, a lot of people are into no-till, which I've never experienced that. I mean, it might work. I'm into kind of what I call low-till. I do as little as possible, as shallow as possible. I, I want a little bit of incorporation, but I don't, you know, I, wanna, I don't want to go deep every time. A lot of guys go out there and, you know, they just want to, you know, it's like, it's the, 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 the motorcycle the wife never let them have or whatever, you know, they get out there. <laughs> and they're just like, you know, do it this way. And they said, you know, I remember when I got first, when I first started this, and I got, a, I got that Sears Craftsman, I, before I knew any of this stuff, you know, it had a, you could set the depth of how far you till. And I was like, well, what's this for? We want to go deep every time, you know. <laughs> Let's just take this off of here because I'm going deep, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to churn this stuff up. And, uh, of course, I got out there, and I was as deep as I could go. And uh, I went this way a couple times and this way a couple times. And I did a couple diagonals. I mean, I just chewed that soil up. Well, guess what? I just destroyed all my microbes, so all my soil structure. I mean, yeah, it looked nice for a day. And then it rained, and it was hard as a pancake again. <laughs> People, don't get into this concept of, you know, going for fluffy dirt. You, if you're out there, get, all, get that picture out of your head. You don't want fluffy dirt. You want chocolate crumb cake. And that's not fluffy. That's kind of a, that's a crumb. That's a, you know, that's sort of congealed together, but it's not like fluffy. You don't want fluffy dirt. Yes, sir? How deep is shallow? I would say, well, we're going to get into that. I think it's the slide coming up here. Let me, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Um, then you got, so you, we want to focus on aerobic microbes and, and, and create an environment that uh, helps them and, and, and sort of is not a good environment for anaerobic microbes. Decomposers, bacteria decompose. Now, now this is the thing, the difference between the bacteria and fungi. Uh, bacteria, they like the soft, wet tissue, okay? They're not, they, get, they produce, uh, they produce uh, alkalines that dissolve stuff, but it has to be soft stuff, okay? 
they're not really good, bacteria are not really good at decomposing woody stuff that's hard. It's got a lot of uh, cellulose in it and lignans and stuff like that. They're hard materials. Bacteria like to uh, decompose the soft stuff. So a lot of times you'll have, when a branch falls on the ground, uh, fungus will, will start off because it's hard and they can, they can do that. But uh, bacteria come in and uh, when it, once it's soft and take care of the rest of the job, just gets, gets, disintegrates it, right? So they, your bacteria like the soft tissue matter and they produce what they call uh, bacterial slime. And they do this to, for protection, you know, and to colonize. And, um, and but the, the byproduct of that is it helps aggregate the soil and get, create that structure, uh, your soil structure gives you that chocolate crumb, okay, that you want. So bacterial slime is a good thing because it, it does something for them, but it also aggregates the soil, means it, it puts it together in, in sort of a loose but attached way. You see what I'm saying? The kind of loose but attached. You know, so uh, that's what bacterial slime can do for you and what uh, bacteria uh, decomposers do. Uh, then there's bacteria that are nitrogen fixers, and they're kind of like the quarterbacks of the team because everybody likes them because you're always trying to get, find ways to get nitrogen in your soil, like you said, without all the chemicals. It's easy to go about, out and buy a bag of urea or nitrate nitrogen and throw it on there and get poof results. But it's like, like putting an athlete on steroids. You know, the, the results are sort of there and then they're gone. And then you got nothing, you know. And you just got a plant full of nitrate nitrogen. Doesn't taste like anything. Plus, plants full of nitrate, talking about how fruits, grains, nuts, and vegetables can actually kill you, is high, nit high nitrate fruits, grains, nuts, and vegetables um, are actually bad, you know, cause heart arrhythmias. They're bad for, your, bad for you. So. Again, the way, it grown, the way it's grown matters. Uh, but these nitrogen fixers uh, actually take nitrogen from the air that's in the soil. Not, they don't take, you know, they're underground, so they can't get air from up above ground. They get the air that breathes in and out of the soil. They take nitrogen into gas, which the plant can't use into gas. It's not, a, not usable for the plant. And uh, do you, everybody know that our atmosphere is about 75 to 80% nitrogen? Everybody know that? Okay. So, and, and do, here's another thing. Do you, everybody know that nitrogen is the base of all proteins? It's kind of like, in uh, hemoglobin, it's iron, you know? And, and chlorophyll, it's magnesium. But there's a lot of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. You always get those three. But then with proteins, there's always nitrogen attached. So nitrogen and proteins are kind of synonymous, okay? When you break down a protein, you're going to get nitrogen, all right? So... Uh, Nitrogen fixers fix this, take N2 gas from the atmosphere and turn it into NH4, which is an ammonia-type nitrogen um, that plants can use. And then from NH4, other bacteria ingest that and, and fix it into N, NH3, which is nitrite, and then, not NH3, NO3, which is nitrite, and NO2, I think I might have that reversed, which is nitrate nitrogen. And that's another form. It's a good thing to know from this class is there's two forms of nitrogen, ammonia, NH4, that plants can use, and NO2 or NO3, I can't remember, uh, that plants um, can use too. One is for condensing energy, like fruiting, when you have to congeal and the, the ammonia nitrogen, and one is for growth, the nitrate nitrogen. Now, our chemical companies just go for the growth, you know, and uh, they put a lot of nitrate nitrogen. But when it's a nitrate nitrogen, the next step is either volatilize back up in the atmosphere or leach away in the watershed, okay? And it's out the door. So you're trying to keep stuff, you want these bacteria in there that fix nitrogen so it hangs out longer in your soil. It's not going to hang out forever, but it'll hang out longer. Yes, sir? They use the kind of nitrogen so they can sell more. Yeah, 
Yeah, it, it, it's there for a little bit of a time. The plant maybe gets 20% of it, 80% goes away, it goes up in the atmosphere, back into the watershed, and you get you know, all that, those dead areas in the Gulf of Mexico and all that kind of stuff uh, because of all the algae blooms. And, um, and, uh, and, and you know, it's, uh, but this, this, this is organic f forms of nitrogen, and it's done for you for free. You don't have to go buy 50-pound bags of the stuff. And it's a lot easier to uh, try to increase your nitrogen fixers, uh, bacteria, than it is to go buy 50-pound bags of nitrate nitrogen. Uh, then you have some ones that uh, are sulfur oxidizers. You get some sulfides in the soil. Plant can't use sulfides. But the bacteria can turn it into sulfates, and now the plant can use sulfates. Needs sulfates. In fact, you can't, you can't produce protein and you can't really assimilate nitrogen unless you have sulfur. So you can throw all the nitrogen you want on the ground, but if you don't have sulfur to help the plant assimilate that nitrogen into a protein, you don't have much, uh, you know, your nitrogen is going to go into waste. So you see how some of these are interrelated and it's just not, oh, I want to go get a bag of nitrogen, you know, and now my plant's healthy. No, if you don't have sulfur, it's not going to really use that nitrogen, okay? Uh, but bacteria help you turn that sulfur into something uh, from, uh, it can use, like in sulfates. Uh-oh, my battery's going dead. Um, anyway, uh, then you got some bacteria, the disease suppressors, and uh, they actually uh, attack certain pathogens that, you, that attack your plant. Why? Because the good bacteria like the plant. They want the sugar. And anything that attacks the plant is attacking their sugar supply. So they attack it and get rid of it. Okay, and certain crops uh, and certain crops are helped. I mean, not all crops and, and, and not all pathogens are can be taken care of with bacteria, but some can. Um, and then you have your actinobacteria, which uh, break slowly break down uh, humates into humic acids. That's uh, like complex carbon change, which are good. You know, we all heard of fulvic acid and humic acid, and some of your humates like that. So again, making it more usable, making that, those humates more usable. So there, that's some of the friendly functions. And remember, we want aerobic bacteria, not anaerobic. Okay, bacteria. Here, here's, your, here's the quarterbacks of the team. Actinobacteria, um, they're free-living nitrogen fixers. Now, here's your rhizobium bacteria, and it's actually going in, penetrating a, a, a cell, a root cell wall. So you think, well, that's bad, you know? But no, it comes in, it sets up shop. And these are like, after it sets up shop, it produces, these are nodules. Everybody seen those on, on legumes? Those are full of rhizobium bacteria. And what are those rhizobium bacteria doing in there? They're taking, uh, they're taking nitrogen out of the air and they're turning it into uh, protein. Uh, where is it? Rose, yeah. Uh, taking it through the plant and turning it into ammonia, um, uh, ammonia, protein and ammonia nitrogen, okay, that the plant can use. Now, why does the plant want that? Why is it specific to legumes? Well, you know, we, as a vegetarian, we always said, you know, you eat beans, you get your vegetarian protein, right? Well, beans are legumes. Everybody knows that, right? Well, where do they get, in order to make protein, and therefore to be full of protein, it's got to be utilized, uh, synthesized in nitrogen in order to make that protein. So you wouldn't, if you didn't have a, a certain bac, uh, rhizobium bacteria, you couldn't make the bean. The plant couldn't make its bean, and you couldn't eat the protein. Do you see how all that works? So when you plant a cover crop, we'll get into cover crops, that are legumes, and they actually are going to give you natural organic nitrogen. You don't have to buy in a bag that comes organically, right? What you do is you've you got to make sure you always buy, and we'll get into this later, you always buy the bacteria inoculant that goes with that cover crop. You've got to make sure it's the right one. It can't just be any old rhizobium. There's certain strains that go with certain crops, okay? And you always want to, uh, you know, sometimes you forget you get in the 
the heat of ordering seeds, you, you know, you think, oh, you know, did I order the inoculant for the, you know, the legume? You always remember to order the inoculant for the legume. Uh, and then your, uh, your actinobacteria, they don't need a symbiotic relationship with the plant. They can just fix nitrogen on their own, doing their own thing. Okay, so they're good. And they, they, this is really critical when you're trying to organic farm because nitrogen is something you want to, you need in your soil, but you need it in organic forms. And this is the way you, the bacteria help, these nitrogen fixing bacteria, which are one subgroup of all the good bacteria, help you get it in a, uh, help you get your nitrogen in an organic form. All right, uh, some of the notes. Bacteria are primary de decomposers of soft tissue. They use strong alkalis, which when it's a strong alkali, uh, organic farmers uh, tend to have high pHs because, and that's okay, don't worry about it. Don't worry about pH. pH is in the conventional system is overplayed. pH is, is a symptom and not a cause, okay? Plants grow good. You can have perfect pH and no plants grow at all. You can have sort of lousy pH and you'll still get a good crop, okay? Don't worry about pH, uh, but just know that bacteria, these, uh, this bacterial slime it produces alkaline and it'll tend to raise pH. Don't get worried too hung up about the pH raising. Uh, bacterial slime is produced for protection, transportation, and helps aggregate the soils. Uh, bacterial dominated soils are favored by annuals. That's another key point you want to write down. Bacterial soils favor annuals. What are annuals? Everybody know what annuals are? Complete their life cycle in one growing season. Go from a seed back to producing a seed in one growing season, okay? That's an annual. And that's basically what you're doing with vegetable gardening. I mean, I'm not into orchard crops like this lady back here has got the trees. Those are perennials. Trees are perennials. They produce fruit year after year after year, and they go dormant in the winter and all that kind of stuff. Well, okay, but perennials, and we're going to get into fungal funguses, are, are produce acids, which, you remember I was telling you about fungals that like to chew up the hard stuff? Well, that would make sense, being around trees, because trees drop branches, and that's great food for funguses. They, they have the acids. So fungal soils tend to be uh, acidic, okay? And, 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 and those, those uh, uh, you want to promote, you, instead of bacteria, you want to kind of promote funguses around orchards and perennial crops. So let's say a vegetable perennial crop, like strawberries. Strawberries are a perennial crop, do better in fungal soils than they do bacterial soils. So just be aware of that and learn how you can produce more funguses in your soil, okay? When you got a, fun when you got a perennial crop or a biennial crop, okay? Which means it takes two years to complete its life cycle. Um, bacterial dominant are favored by annuals. Uh, attracted to root acidates from living plants, we already did. Uh, bacteria immobilize, it's a good word, immobilize leachable nutrients. You know, the fast-acting miracle Grow stuff you buy at Home Depot, is fast acting. It gives you a result and then it whoosh, washed away, right? It doesn't stay in the soil. So, some of your more leachable nutrients, like your uh, nitrate nitrogens, uh, sulfur is a leachable nutrient, boron is a leachable nutrient. Some of your more leachable nutrients you want to hang on to, well, bacteria help you hang on to that, okay? And it not just leach away, which is better for the next generation because they don't have to deal with it in their water system, okay? Uh, they release bound up unavailable nutrients, which we talked about. They can digest stuff that the plant root can't digest. Uh, and com uh, in inorganic rock material and complex them with carbon, making them available to plants. Okay, we already sort of went over that. Some are able to fix nitrogen from the air into the soil. We just went over that. Okay, now, case in point. I don't know who that is. I just started a guy with a smile. It looked like a morning smile. Uh, but down here on the bottom, this is bacterial slime. You ever, you know, wake up in the morning and you rub your teeth and you get this white junk on your finger? I mean, you know, like morning, well, all night long you've been sleeping, bacteria have been uh, colonizing your teeth. And you think, ooh, that's gross, I better go brush my teeth. 
But when you're talking about plants and roots, that's a great thing. Your bacterial, that's the bacterial slime that you got on your teeth. And, uh, and, and they, like we said, the bacteria produce it in order to, uh, you know, to colonize, to transport themselves around and all that kind of stuff. And that bacterial slime is, uh, will aggregate your soils and keep them like a chocolate crumb. And you can't really go in there and destroy them with a bunch of tillin or a bunch of harsh fertilizers and toxic uh, pesticides and herbicides. Okay, now we're moving on to fungi. Let's finish with the bacteria. Uh, moving on. Uh, you've got different types of fungi. Some of the star players in the fungi, you've got just regular kind of run-of-the-mill hypha fungi, which they actually are like lattices. They're thread-like materials. See this right here, right there, that little thing? That's fungi, right? These threads are fungi. That's a root, and this is funguses. It's, it has infected the root and is shooting out from the plant root. Now, that's a root from the plant, and this is a fungus growing into that root. You think, oh, that's bad. No, mycorrhizal fungi actually, again, they form a symbiotic relationship with the plant. And they actually, I think, do I have another? Oh, I got a picture coming up. I'll show you. It actually grows into the cell root and takes up shop in the, cell, in the, the root of the cell. And it actually can now, you know, this, this plant root, I got to change the battery. This plant root can only access so many nutrients. But man, all these guys, they're getting sugar from the root, right? That the, only the plant can make because they're underground. They can't make sugar. They don't see sunlight, right? But they're getting that sunlight sugar from the plant. And in return, they're going out there and capturing nutrients for the plant, extra nutrients that the plant root itself couldn't capture. It wants, that, it wants to help that plant make sugar. It says, hey, you can't get it? I can and he comes up there and it infects the root here. And that's another example of a symbiotic relationship that is, there's only a few species of plants that don't use this system. 90% of the flora life on the planet Earth rely on mycorrhizal fungi. And they, they, they just only found this out about 10, 12 years ago. This is like new stuff. I mean, have you ever heard of mycorrhizal fungi? Well, you're going to hear about it because it's a big thing. <laughs> <laughs> and it's new. I mean, only, they didn't realize how dependent our life, floral life was on this kind of stuff. Uh, then you have, this is an interesting picture. This is the kind of picture that kind of rocked, rocked the world. You ever have, uh, you know, you ever have the art? Well, you're in the health. You know, people say, well, you know, if you eat a Snickers bar or eat uh, an apple, same thing. Sugar, sugar. You know, you ever heard those people in the health message, you know, when they say, oh, the health message is not, you know, it doesn't matter what you eat. You know, body's going to turn into glucose anyway, and that's all the cells eat anyway. Well, we know that's not true. We don't. It does matter what you eat. And it, it's not about, okay, you just get the end product glucose, but how you got to the end product glucose. Well, um, I don't know where I was going with that, but anyway. Uh, what was I talking about? What, what, what led me off on that? Mycorrhizal. I was drawing an, uh, a parallel between uh, uh, Snickers and apples, glucose, glucose. Oh, mycorrhizal, the scientist. Oh, I, had, I can't remember where I was going with that. I got distracted. But that oh, was a good point. But anyways, how, how you get something matters. I mean, it's just not, a, oh, I know what it was. People say, oh, okay, I get, it came back to me. Uh, nitrogen, I say nitrogen is nitrogen. It doesn't matter if you throw it on from a bag or, you know, if you got some organic way to get it. Nitrogen is nitrogen. And, but but it, it does matter because if you throw stuff on, you're, you're, you know, 
chemical nitrogen, you know, urea and some of these, you know, highly acidified uh, nitrogens that are quick acting, well, you destroy this and you don't have it anymore. Now, when this root-eating nematode, now this is a bad ne nematode, it's trying to get into that root and, and, and it'll take your plant down in one night, right? It'll be limp out there after the root nematodes get to it. It's, this hypha is saying, no way, and it's protecting this is a root surface right here, it's and it's growing on that root surface, and it's protecting that root from getting penetrated by that nematode. It's, got little, it's developed little donuts here that swell with water when a nematode goes through it. It's kind of loose and, you know, not very, it's sort of disguised and you can't really see it. Then when the nematode get, goes through it, it swells with water and traps it and eats it. It, it starts digesting it, that nematode. And now it doesn't infect your root and you save your plant. Now, if you're using just nitrogen is nitrogen, if you're of that opinion, and you've killed this because these are really fragile, they can't hold up to a lot of chemical fertilizers and a lot of tilling. If you kill this, then you no longer have that protection, and then you're going to have to have some toxic chemical to deal with nematodes, and you've got to go buy another product, you know, nematode side or whatever, you know, they make all the sides, you know, the, the, the dot, uh, kill stuff. So I'd rather have this one doing the job 24-7 than getting a problem and then having to go to the store and buying something that hopefully kills this, right? This fungi is on the job 24-7 and he's free. It didn't cost me anything. Uh, you were speaking about nitrogen. Someone, I have a lime tree that's hmm? been struggling for three years, almost four years. It just can't go anywhere. And I was going to about to pull it up and somebody said to me, throw some urine on it. Urine? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's ammonia-based nitrogen. Yeah, you're, you know, there's a book out called Liquid Gold. I got the book, and uh, it talks about using urine. Of course, you water it down. You don't use it straight, you know. But, uh, you, but urine is, uh, it's not like, I would never, you know, advocate um, human you know, stool. But uh, urine is actually uh, sterile, sterile product from your body. It's not that gross, you know, if you don't, you know, get out of our typical mindset. And it actually supplies, a, a, you know, a good form of ammonia-based nitrogen. And you can uh, use it to, I know, I'm not saying you go do that. I know it kind of turns people <laughs> off. But, hey, if push comes to shove, you know, end times, who knows? You know, might be the thing you need to do, right? But always, uh, you want to get the book Liquid Gold. And I think, I haven't read it in a while, but I think you have to water that down. You can't use it, like, straight. You'll burn it, you know. But, um, yeah. Like nitrogen is nitrogen. It's right. It's how it gets to glucose that matters. It's 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 not just nitrogen is nitrogen. Organic nitrogens actually let this little fungi live that can protect your plant. Inorganic nitrogens actually will kill that fungi and now you don't have that protection anymore. And that should really rock your world. That kind of ends the debate. When you see this picture, I want to promote that little fungus. I don't want to wipe them out by my farming practices. Um, now here's mycorrhizal fungi and here's a, a cross-section of, you know, kind of a drawing of how it works. Here's the, here's the, golly, this is not working anymore. Here's the, uh, the little thread coming out there. There's the root hair. Here's the root, right? All the cells of the root. Here's Here's the fungus that's infected the root hair, and these are, ab what do they call these, abuscules? Ab What's the word? How do, they, how do you pronounce that word? Ab uh, abuscules? Abuscules? And then, uh, and then uh, 
vesicles and aviscles, they set up in the root and they actually come out here and what they're really good at, and you can write this down, what they're really good at is some, one thing that's hard for plants to get is phosphorus. And mycorrhizal fungi are really good at taking in phosphorus for the plant. And phosphorus is important for plants. And it's really hard for them to take it in by the, without, the, without, without the mycorrhizal. So mycorrhizal fungi really help with the uh, uptake of phosphorus in the plant. Uh, Okay, you have, well, like we just saw, functions of fungi, you have your predaceous fungi that protect the plant, your mycorrhizal that help feed the plant in the, by establishing a symbiotic relationship, and you have your hyphal fungi, which what they do, you know, you have your bacterial slime that's gluing things together, and then these, th these uh, fungal threads actually are the framework, and they actually, too, help aggregate the soil and, keep, and get that chocolate crumb you're one, okay? So bacteria and fungi, your friends. Uh, they produce, uh, I won't go through, see, they use strong acids, bacteria use strong alkalis, they use strong acids, and that lowers the pH. So around your orchard crops and your grapes and things that are perennials, you're gonna have, you usually tend to have a lower pH, but that's okay, because if it's working right, your funguses are gonna be producing acids, and they're gonna be taking that pH down. See, pH is not something you really have to govern. If you worry about, be a, be a good steward to your microbes, your microbes will work out the pH for you. Okay? You don't have to worry your head about it. Um, like again, pH is, a, no, we, in, the, in the health things, we always are, you know, focus on, you know, reason from cause to effect, right? Uh, uh, you know, don't take care of the system, symptoms, take care of the cause. Well, uh, funguses are, uh, you know, pH, pH is a symptom and not a cause. Okay? Take care of the thing that's causing a bad pH. Don't take care of pH. Um, and your bacteria, your, your microbial life, if you focus on that, they'll help you with your pH. Uh, fungal dominates uh, uh, favor perennials. Agglomalin is the sticky substances that, uh, that, that funguses produce, um, and it kind of protects their thread-like bodies, and the glomalin is like a glue. It's like a protein glue, and it actually helps aggregate the soil, which when, you, when it, we talk about soil aggregation, we're, you know, we're talking about that chocolate crumb, and why is that good? Why is a chocolate sort of attached but not too tightly attached? You know, you can have a dirt clod, like a clay dirt clod, and that's bad. Nothing penetrates that. But if you, but if you, and you can have sand, which there is no attachment. It's just grains of sand. Well, both are bad. I can't really grow things in you know, hard dirt clods, and I can't really grow things in pure sand either. I need something that's kind of bound together but not too tightly. And what that does is, what, how the funguses help you is they... You know, now water, when I get rained on, instead of it rushing off and going into a creek or going, to, you know, wherever, it, it penetrates the soil down deep because I've got good soil structure. Um, and also, uh, good soil structures of well-aggregated soils also let the soil breathe. At night, the soil breathes in. You know, air comes into the soil, cools and breathes, comes in. In the daytime, as the ground heats up, air moves out. And all that stuff that the microbes have exhaled, all that carbon and all the things they've broken down that are carbon, breaking down carbon, it goes up and the leaves capture it. So you want good porosity, they call that, in the soil. So water can go down and water actually comes up. It defies gravity and you call capillary water, which is really the best water to water your plants. Remember in the Bible it says Genesis and a mist came from the earth? It, 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 water came from underground up rather than falling from the heavens. Remember, we had what, over 2,000 years with no rain. How'd that work? How did we grow anything with no rain? The water moved up. 
And the, the science behind that might have been a miracle, but it's, if it's science, if God designed it in, in the natural world, then um, it moved up through capillary action. Or pressure, maybe it was just a mist, I don't know. But, uh, huh? Yes, and yes. What I noticed in the evening when the tide came up, I could see these spots of water all over the coral. And I said, this is amazing. It actually, the water comes right up and all. Well, that's a different, that's not capillary, though. No, capillary action, I'll go r real quick, and I think I got one, is when you, the sun evaporates the water, and water, because it's open and well-aggregated soil, the water moves up to take its place. That's capillary. You're talking about a different, sort of a tidal moon, you know, sort of a moon thing actually, which is good too. You know, you can use the moon for uh, soil moisture too. But the capillary water is a result of evaporation and well-aggregated soils allowing that soil to move up from way down below where it's not, it doesn't dry out. Uh, immobilized leachable nutrients, just like bacteria, uh, lives off root exudates and uh, again, releases nutrients from bound up inorganic rock. Uh, then you have things called algae. You know, they were in that first slide with the soil food, mare, uh, soil food web. You have algae, which is, um, you know, it eats some of the bacteria, it eats some of the fungi. It, in return, releases nutrients that the plants can use. So, again, you're, again with the, uh, these are blue-green algaes, which they actually can produce sugar. They, uh, you see sometimes them on the top of the soil. You know, you see that little green tint sometimes when you're planting things. Blue-green algae. You have diatoms. That's another form of algae. Again, slime molds. Uh, slime molds are, you know, you look at them and say, oh, gross, this can't be good. But slime molds are actually a sign of healthy biological activity. They don't hurt anything. Uh, they actually help break down stuff, okay? Um, and they're very visible. So they're kind of up, up, they're kind of a, a bacteria formation that you can see. It's not microscopic. There's, they colonate enough where you can actually see them. Uh, then you have, uh, okay, I go into sort of telling you what algaes and slime, slime molds do. Uh, Algae produces, you know, carbonic acids that dissolve rocks. You know, that's where most of our soil comes from. You know, the perfect soil, I think I'm going to do, talk about this yesterday, is 45% minerals. Where does it come from? From bedrock, right? How does it become mineralized and not just a big old boulder down there? Well, algaes actually can break down that stuff. Lichens can break down rock. And that's where some of the parent, and 45% of the soil is inert rock or inorganic rock. Uh, only 5% is organic matter called humus, okay? And then 25% uh, is air and 25% is water, and that's a perfect soil. But algae helps you make that 45% of that rock. Uh, uh, excretes polysaccharides and the sticky stuff, which helps aggregation. And we already talked about the blue-green algae. Decomposers, slime molds, uh, they immobilize leachates, and they, their excretions help aggregate. Then you have things called protozoa which eat bacteria and eat fungi. Uh, these are some of the types of, you know, the things we all saw in our, you know, t uh, fifth grade science class, you know, drawing all the little parts. Uh, the ciliate with the little fingers, and then you have amoebas with the big pods, big feet, and then you have your phylogelates with the little whip-like tails come out the end. And again, they eat bacteria, they help protect plants, the bad bacteria, sometimes they just eat the pathogenic ba bad bacteria, okay? And they can help protect your plants. These are just a cast of characters. Here are nematodes, uh, the headshots of nematodes. And you can see, here's your bacteria feeding nematodes. That's not a bad one to have. Can feed on a, a lot of, it, it's good to feed on even the good bacteria, and it can eat bad bacteria, pathogenic uh, bacteria that hurt your plants. 
Um, but even if it feeds on good bacteria, it recycles them and digests them and poops them out, and then the plants can use that. Something bound up in a bacteria that it couldn't access before. So you see how this web works, okay? You have your predatory uh, nematodes, which actually attack other nematodes, and then you have the bad guys. You see the little piercing part. They pierce into the root and go inside your root and start eating all the sugars, and the plant dies. They're parasites. These guys aren't parasites. This nematode is a parasite. It's bad. You don't want it. But a lot of times, this predatory ne nematode will eat this root-eating nematode. Okay? So that's why you want to promote this life and let the soil life take care of your plant problems. You feed the soil, meaning you feed the soil biology, and let the soil biology feed the plant. That's kind of the mantra. Then you got orthopods. Orthopods just means segmented legs. And uh, you got your predatory mites, which actually eat some of the bad stuff. And you got everybody's seen a sow bug or a pill bug, they call them sometimes. Uh, I think there's a difference between I think the pill bug balls up and the sow bug doesn't, but they look exactly the same. Um, and they actually eat uh, and decompose stuff and eat stuff, okay? These eat live things, these eat dead plant material. And you want to break that down and it, so you, that you can turn, you know, leaf into humus. That's how you turn a leaf into humus, by these things eating and breaking it down, okay? A leaf doesn't do a plant much good, but humus from that leaf does a plant a lot of good. And it require, requires this uh, biology to do that. Uh, you got springtails, which are shredders, and they eat dead material. And then you got uh, turtle mites that are fungal feeders. They eat funguses. And then you got your thing we all know, and we all know is good, is earthworm. But it's, like I said, it's, the, it's sort of the end of the line in the soil food web, okay? And, and, and it's good to have earthworms. They, they poop out worm castings, which are great. But the great thing about earthworms is it proves to you that the rest of those guys are there. That's the best thing about them. It proves to your soil's working biologically, okay? And some people just think of the worm casting, and that's okay, but also think about that other thing, about the proof that the whole soil food web is working. Okay, now, here's a cool thing. Uh, since it is Sabbath, and, uh, you know, we're going to kind of keep this a, a little, uh, pepper it with a few spiritual things. I used to read this uh, verse in the Bible and think, what? I really don't get this. Uh, we know the verse, when an unclean spirit is gone out of, uh, of a man, he walketh through dry places uh, seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return to my house from whence I came out. And when he co is come, he finds it empty and swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh him himself seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be into this wicked generation." All right, I was always thinking, you know, when, when I got to this part, it says, and he came, this wicked spirit came back, and he found everything swept clean and taken out. What does it say? Uh, where is it? Uh, swept clean uh, and garnished. Empty, swept, and garnished. I would think, well, that's, that's good, you know, swept clean. Empty, swept, and garnished. But really, when you throw on your pesticides, herbicides, and your, um, your um, you know, harsh fertilizers, you're really taking out all the life. It's like an antibiotic. It just wipes out the good and the bad. It's swept clean. And guess what always comes back first in a barren soil? The bad guys always come back first. Because good guys, they work slower. It takes them longer. Bad guys, they're parasites. They're opportunists. They're in and out. You know, they don't last. They're just there. Use it. Use it up and move on to the next thing. Whereas good guys are building relationships. They're slower. They take more time. And once something gets... And the bad guys always come back and inhabit first, and then the good guys just move on down the road. It's not worth 
you know, all the trouble. Okay, so that kind of gives you some depth to that. I, I think it gave, it gave depth to me to that verse, okay? That swept clean, like, you know, and no life, all the life gone. Guess what? The evil things are going to come back and inhabit first. You want to build good colonies. Then the bad guys don't get a chance, okay? Good microbial colonies. Here's that root nematode again going into the plant and eating that root. Here's a predatory nematode eating another nematode. That's good. And then here's the soil food web in action. When it's over here, it's out of action, and, and, you're a, and your plant is dependent on you to go buy a poison to kill that before it goes in. Well, if you're not right on, and how do you know when it's going in? You don't. So why not keep the good biology around, and that way this can protect it 24-7, 365. Okay, that's my, that's my argument. Don't, I, I, don't I don't believe in hydroponics. I mean, I mean, it's okay, for, but it's a lot of work, a lot, but, and I don't think you can, you can make a slurry of liquid that can mimic what goes on in good fertile soil. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you just run, just basically aquaponics with just fish in there making the stuff instead of you adding it with, with the bottle, I guess. All right. I mean, I'm not involved with it. That's not how I grow. But I tend to think soil was the medium God intended for plants. Yeah. The Bible says he who fills the soil will not go hungry. No, I've, uh, I know someone who has a pond. Yeah. He takes the water out and he waters the plant. Oh, okay, but you're still in the soil. Yeah, it's the, I'm thinking, when I think an aquaponic, I'm thinking uh, just a, sort of like rocks, and then you flush through some, you know, some soup that you've made, and it, it, you know, it's soluble nutrients, and the plant takes up, and of course they grow stuff like that, but I don't think you get the, the nutrient density, and that's what we're after, is nutrient density, yeah. Sometimes, yep. I don't, I mean, it's not out of my realm, I mean, I, I mean, you probably could get a guy who does it this way, and he could come give a class on it, and you... I mean, I might be convinced to do it. I mean, I don't know. I've just never farmed that way. So I can't really make a, you know, I can't really make an educated comment on that really for you. I wish I could. Oh, here's soil food web. Okay, in the top three inches, this is a good bacteria. 78% of your bacteria is going to be in the top three inches. That's why, you know, tilling's bad because most of the stuff is right there in the top. Why is it in the top three inches? Because there's more oxygen here. They're aerobic microbes, right? They love oxygen. They, and those are the good guys. Look at, the, look at the numbers, antimyocetes or an, 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 actinobacteria, 87% fungi, 62% of the fungi are in the top three inches, algae, 82% of the top three inches, and then you can see it gets progressively less and less the further down the soil you go. That's why you don't, if you till deep, well, usually eight inches is about deep you can go with a tiller, I don't care what kind of tiller it is, um, you're going to wipe out just about all this stuff. If you till shadow, like three inches or less, okay, you might wipe out this, your majority, but hopefully you got enough of this stuff in the below the three-inch mark to come and repopulate that. And that's why we just till shallow and till as minimally as possible, okay? Because we don't want to wipe this stuff out that's really fragile. And especially fungi, funguses. They don't hold up to tillage very, you know, bacteria can make it through a little bit, but they like it at a certain level. They don't like it being three inches. They like one inch down, so you're, you're ruining all that for the bacteria. And when the environment goes away, they go away. I really like that. So I won't go into all this, but I think we got most of it. Uh, let's, what does the yellow one say? To get uh, biology started, 
Work one inch, okay, this is a good take home. Work one inch of compost into the top three inches of soil. And then put in one cup of stra black strap molasses. Black strap molasses has a lot of minerals in it, plus it's an easy carbon, an easy natural carbon. And always put that on with, uh, you know, dilute that with non-chlorinated water. Not much point of mixing any of these things in with chlorinated water, which kills microbes, okay? That's why the chlorine's in there. Chlorine, I mean, it's, it's a micronutrient for plants, but too much of it, we all know what it does. It just kills life. It's like an antibiotic. Uh, and you want to uh, also can make some aerated compost teas. Do everybody know what aerated compost tea is? It's, you know, you've always said, oh, just put a, a, a handful of uh, uh, manure in a, in a barrel of rainwater, and boom, you got compost tea. Ah, you might have anaerobic compost tea. It's not beneficial. Which is not beneficial. What you, aerobic compost tea actually uh, puts the, that, that, the same stuff in the, in, the, in the rainwater and then you percolate it with air. You have it, hook up an air pump and percolate it with air and you increase the numbers of aerobic microbes and then put it on. Okay. You, well, it's kind of getting ahead of myself. You take compost, put it in a, like a, a tea bag, like a, fish, like a pantyhose stocking, you know, or something like that so you don't, you don't have to strain it out later. Uh, and uh, put it in a five-gallon bucket, and then they have special air and, and, and uh, uh, air, uh, air pumps and air distributors that percolate that water through the, or percolate the air through that water. And you put in a little. Uh, if you want to build bacteria, you can put in some uh, molasses to give it some food, and it'll that air and that molasses will just. Poof, I mean, the uh, percolate it for about 18 hours you know, like overnight, and boom, the population of aerobic bacteria go up. If you want f more funguses, you can put some, uh, like, plant husk in there, like, um, like oat, oat bran or something like that, and that'll increase the fungal populations, which you would want with uh, some, some of your perennial crops. Bacteria populations you want to increase with your annual crops. Yes, sir? Right, hold on, because I got to get through this before, uh, before, you know, we're running out of time. We got, like, five minutes. Um, uh, help soil, uh, soil, why a healthy soil food well helps soil to form more original parent rock material, uh, contributes to the aggregation of soil, assists water and air penetration into the soil, uh, enhances the cycling of nutrients from dead things, it, uh, from you know, dead plant matter, uh, transforms nutrients from one form to another, and or it goes from an unavailable form to a plant to an available form to a plant. Uh, and you get these new compounds that the plants can use. Assist plants in obtaining nutrients from the soil, metabolites. You know, metabolites meaning things it throws off, like breath, uh, poop, sweat, dead bodies. Uh, degrades toxic substance in the soil. You can actually use a soil food web to take out pollution. You know, they used it to clean up the oil spills and stuff like that. Uh, minimizes diseases in plants. Uh, the how. How do you do this? How do you increase this, uh, of this soil food web? You can use compost teas. but Remember, if you don't have a lot of biological activity in your soil, throwing on compost tea is probably, they're just going to die because the environment's not right for them, okay? So compost teas work really good when the soil's kind of right already. You know, they, they kind of like icing on the cake. First, you've got to get that soil where, you know, your good microbes will want to live. You know, just throwing them on their own soil that is, they, they, they uh, I mean, you know, you just kind of got to get the soil right first. Uh, compost um, is another way. And... When we say compost, it's humus size, okay? And you work it in shallow, you don't work it in deep. Um, and humus size, 
you know, mulch is something like a leaf you can see. And then it breaks down into something that's sort of broken up, but you can kind of till cell. Well, this is a stick and this is a leaf. And then humus is like, you look at it and you can't even tell what it used to be. It's just dark chocolate crumb, okay? And you're like, it's just, this looks good. I don't know what it was, but it looks good, okay? That's humus and that's what you want. And then there's even a size below that called a, uh, what's the uh, A colloid, humic colloid, okay? And that's even better. But make sure the compost, not all composts are, some people putting stuff in bags, all it is is ground up tree bark. Compost goes through a biological breakdown. It's not just ground up fine, okay? Good compost is fine, but it's fine from a biological process, not a mechanical process, okay? So, you know, ask questions, and if you can't get good answers from these sales clerks, most of them don't know nothing, uh, then just don't buy it. Don't waste your money, because you're not going to get a lot of use out of ground-up tree bark. That's not compost, okay? Um, I mean, it's probably good for some things, but don't think it's compost. Uh, manure, you can, manure increases a healthy soil food whip. Never use fresh manure. Uh, they say some things respond to it better, like squash or some of the cucurbits, but I would never use fresh manure. I don't care where it came from. I would always use composted aged manure. Uh, mulch is put on top of the surface. Uh, smaller green mulch, like grass, is good for bacterial annuals. The larger browner stuff, like wood chips, or you know, uh, are, is good for uh, perennials. Cover crop, that's the big one, cover crop. Winter cover crops and summer cover crops are, are never leave your soil bare. Always grow a cover crop. And that's pushing those exudates out there and feeding that biology with that sugar out of the root exudates. And, and grow, always put some grass in there. Grass has a lot of roots and hangs on to nutrients. And put a legume in there. Don't have big roots, but what they do is provide nitrogen from the air. Okay, so always 80% legume, 20% grass. Calcium. This calcium, how do you produce a healthy soil food web? This calcium to magnesium ratio, you want to keep it 7 to 1. You got a soil test to know that, okay? You got to do soil tests. You want a 7 to 1 calcium magnesium ratio because that creates space. It flocculates your soil. You get that ratio tighter than 7 to 1, you're going to have clods and hard soil and sticky hard soil. Okay, if it's wet, it's sticky. If it's not wet, it's hard as a rock and like bricks. So you want a 7 to 1 ratio. That means, and uh, that opens up the, uh, the, poor, uh, the spaces and helps with the aggregation. Avoid unnecessary untimely tillage. Remember, till as little as possible and as shallow as possible. Uh, no foot traffic on beds when you, we're going to get into layout. You don't want to be walking on your soil that you're trying to farm on all the time. Have designated walkways and designated growing spaces, and you're going to relieve a lot of compaction because when you step on it and press it down, all the air goes away and all your aerobic-loving microbes go away, okay? So uh, design your layout, and we're going to get into layout with, uh, with permanent beds, okay? Apply easy carbon and or easy nitrogen. Okay, easy nitrogen would be like fish emulsion. Everybody heard of fish emulsion? Usually high in nitrogen. Uh, easy carbon would be like, a, you know, a black strap molasses. Those will, you know, they're liquids, they're organic, they don't, they don't produce, uh, they're organic, so they don't, you know, microbes are like us. I mean, if, what if somebody threw us in a vat of salt? Osmosis, we, we would lose our moisture. Uh, it, it, the salt would draw the moisture right out of us. It does the same. Well, a salt's just not like table salt. In, in, in chemistry, a salt is anything that doesn't have an organic compound with it. So when you throw a microbe, any, anything, you know, on there, you've got to say, am I drying out my microbes? And see, easy carbon, like uh, in a, a, an easy carbon, like in, a, in molasses, that's, that's carbon. I mean, that's a complex to a carbon. You know, it's sugar. Uh, it's a sugar carbon. And, and, and easy nitrogen, like fish emulsion, it's complex to carbon. It doesn't dry things out. 
So you get a liquid that's highly soluble. Uh, don't use any herbicides. Maybe cornmeal. Some people say that's a good herbicide. Uh, limited pesticides. Uh, uh, you know, OMRI-approved pesticides. Limited. OMRI-approved. Organic Materials Research Institute re re uh, requires, you know, uh, is, is a way to, you know, what organic growers have to use. It has to be OMRI-approved. But then some OMRI-approved stuff is like an antibiotic. It wipes off everything, like pyrethrins. It's organically approved, but it kills everything. Okay, you want to try to get target-specific organic pesticides when you have to use them. Uh, when you use dry fertilizers, you want slow-release dry fertilizers, not quick-acting fertilizers that dissolve real quick, okay? You want slow-release. Uh, OMRI-approved wet soil fertilizers, I think that was above. Uh, foliar, feed, foliar fertilizers where you just fertilize through the leaf. Uh, you, want, you can use those uh, to promote the healthy soil food web. And of course, dry foliar dust. Of course, you don't want something. You want to use something that's OMRI approved. Okay, that's it. We made it. Ten thirty, three. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com or. If you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.